My name is Justin Leach, and I'm one of the pastors here at Center Church. Uh, If you're a guest with us this morning, uh, or this is one of the first few times that you have come and worshiped with us, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, We'd love to connect with you, uh, get to know you a little bit more, and ultimately, we want to help you grow into a mature and multiplying disciple of Jesus Christ. This week, we are in the second of our three-week series, uh, as we've taken a quick break from the book of Acts, uh, talking about money which we are calling Three Rich Guys in the Bible. All right, Three Rich Guys in the Bible. This is a quick break, like I said, from our walk through the book of Acts to address this specific topic, money, which Jesus actually talked about more than heaven and hell combined. Now, the Bible often talks about money and possessions more than anything else uh, by a landslide. One pastor describes it uh, like this as he's putting it in perspective. 16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with money. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament addresses this topic of money and possessions. Scripture, in contrast, offers about 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 on faith, but over 2,000 on money. The believer's attitude, he says, towards money and possessions is determinative. Over these few weeks, uh, we are going to take some time to address this specific question as we talk about money. How does our relationship with Jesus impact our relationship with money? And maybe not how does, but according to the scriptures, how should our relationship with Jesus impact our relationship with money? Today we are going to be reading, uh, as uh, Michael just did for us, uh, from Matthew 19 and learning what the scripture teaches about us about money from there. I've heard it said that uh, the same sun that, hardened, that softens wax hardens clay. Right? Many of you may have heard a similar idea. Last week, Pastor Josh preached from Luke 19 where we saw the story of Zacchaeus. Right, Zacchaeus was a sinner, uh, he was a tax collector taking advantage of other people, and he encountered Jesus and was led to joyfully surrender all of his possessions to love and to follow God. This week, we are going to come across another rich man in the Bible, but he is not going to have the same outcome. Unfortunately, this rich young man is going to encounter Jesus, and instead of going away softened in worship and joy, he is going to go away hardened in sorrow. This is a sad case, right? Both men encountered the same exact Jesus with the same exact message, but they had a very different ending. Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector and a sinner, an enemy to his own Jewish people by taking advantage of them. But through an encounter with Jesus, he was softened by Jesus' grace and was led to love God and to worship him. The rich young man who we are looking at today was morally outstanding and impressive in the eyes of God's people, a leader among God's people even. But he left Jesus' presence sorrowful and hardened. Before you write this off, before you uh, turn off your ears today and don't pay attention, I need to let you know that this character today grew up in a religious home. The character that we are looking at today did all of the right religious things. This character, the rich young man that we are speaking with today, was the kind of young man, as we will see, that every Christian father would want his daughter to bring home to meet the parents. But he leaves an encounter with Jesus hardened and sorrowful and missing out on the kingdom of heaven. This is important for you to hear today, no matter who you are. Jesus encounter, or This rich young man encounters Jesus and leaves sorrowful. I think we have the conception as we look through the scripture that if we can just get anybody in the presence of Jesus, they will have joy. But this story tells us something very different and something that should cause us a little bit of fear, I think. 
that it is possible to encounter Jesus and his true message and to hear it and to leave hardened and sorrowful. So I hope that no matter who you are today, you will engage with the scripture today, that you will hear from the word of God and that you will be warned to look at your own heart, to inspect your own life, and to see if you, maybe, have been not responding to Jesus in the right way. The same sun that softens wax hardens clay. There are some of us in here who are going to see Jesus and his message and respond with joy. But there are some, there are some of us in this very room who have responded with hardening and may continue to do so. That's why we pray and we ask that God would open our eyes to know the glory of the gospel and to trust in him to be born again, that we might have spiritual life. In this passage, we're going to see why the rich young man was hardened rather than softened after an encounter with Jesus. From his experience, we're going to learn how we might find joy rather than sorrow in Jesus' presence. But before we hop into those reasons that the young man walked away with sorrow, we're just going to walk through the story, get introduced to the characters, and have an understanding of what's going on. So start with me in verse 16 of Matthew 19. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, we'll stop here and introduce this character with whom Jesus is interacting. All right, the rich young man. The rich young man. Although this story does not ending up, end up turning out well for him, he has a lot going for him at the beginning. Right, he approaches the right person with his questions. He comes to the Messiah, Jesus himself. How cool would that be if we got to do that? He desires the right goal in life. He's seeking after eternal life and to be right with God. He even asks the right question, how can I get saved? Right? He is moving in all the right direction. Also, this man, this rich young man, is wealthy in at least three different ways that we see in this passage. First, he's financially well off. Later, we'll see that he has great possessions. It's one of the reasons that he has a hard time following Jesus. Second, he is morally wealthy. He's a good, solid guy. Later in the passage, we're going to see that he really does live up to all of the religious and moral expectations of his day. The problem is not that he's a relatively good guy in his day. The problem is that he doesn't understand the gospel rightly. This is a good guy. He is morally wealthy compared to the people around him. Third, he is relationally wealthy. In Luke, who records the same story, uh, he points out that he's a ruler. He's appointed by his peers as a leader of God's people that they will follow and submit to as he leads them in uh, the ways that the city works together. He's given this position and authority of leadership. Relationally, people look up to him. If any person was a candidate, a good candidate to apply for Jesus' team, this guy was it, right? This guy had it all going for him. He was spiritually interested and zealous going to Jesus with his questions. He was financially savvy, had lots of wealth. He was a good, solid guy. He's gifted in leadership, respected by peers. He's young with a full life ahead of him to serve God. And he comes to him saying, Jesus, what can I do to be saved? But Jesus responds to this impressive man's question, not with welcoming and acceptance and being impressed himself. Instead, he responds with a soft rebuke and really an ongoing conversation. In verse 17, Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And, Jesus, and the young man said to Jesus, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The mature Christian, I know there are many of you out there, the theologically astute who have done their reading, uh, will have a question come up into their mind when they heard this man's initial question, right? What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? We know uh, that nobody can earn eternal life, 
And as we see in Jesus' response, your theological sniffer is spot on. There is a problem right there. Jesus picks up and focuses on this idea of good in his response. What good deed must I do? Jesus is concerned about this man's assumption that he might do something good to earn God's favor. That he might do something good enough to impress God. And he reminds this man that there is only one who is good. God himself. The man, unsatisfied with this answer, probably having heard it before from the Jewish leaders of the day, says, okay, keep the commandments, got that. Which ones must I keep? There must be a special teaching, Jesus, that you have to offer to me. I've done all the JV stuff. Now give me the varsity level so I can really step into what you have called me to. And Jesus mentions again, nothing incredibly unique, nothing earth-shattering, nothing groundbreaking. He names five commandments from the list of the Ten Commandments and then one commandment from Leviticus 19 that sums it all up. Commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and then 5, and then Leviticus 19, summing all of those up. And in other places where Jesus summed up the whole law, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. The commands that Jesus picks here have to do with loving others as a little bit of a foreshadowing to where the other man is going to fall short later. He's going to be called to sell everything, to love others, and to give to the poor, and it's too far for him to go. Jesus tells this man, you want more? You want to know what to obey? There's nothing special I have for you. If you want to be saved, just obey the commandments and you'll find eternal life. As a side note today, if anyone in here would be able to do that, the same offer is available to you. If you obey the commandments perfectly, you will find eternal life. It's true. It was true for this man and it's true for us today. I will say you don't have much hope of pulling it off as we will uh, continue to go uh, find out in this passage. Verse 20, the conversation uh, continues on. In response to Jesus' challenge for the young man to obey all of these commandments, the young man responds, all these, with serious misunderstanding, but all these I have kept, what do I still lack? This man, according to his understanding of the Old Testament law, and according to the way the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders of the day understood the Old Testament law, This man wasn't wrong. He thought that he had done everything necessary to uphold the law. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of the day, the way they interpreted and understood the law, he likely lived up to that. He was a good, solid guy like we mentioned before. But we must be clear, he did not actually live up to God's standards. Right? He didn't actually keep the law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This man just thought that he had done that. He was a good guy, though. He was blameless according to the day. He didn't steal, he didn't murder, he didn't commit adultery, he didn't eat pork, he didn't break the Sabbath, right? He did all of the right things. According to worldly standards, again, I'll say, this man has it all. Respectable morality, religious zeal, approval of his peers. He has everything. This is the kind of guy that every dad hopes their daughter brings home to meet the parents. This is the kind of person that might be pictured on the front of the magazine in the back of the airplane seats, Right, this is the kind of student that gets into UVA and is involved in doing much good for the world and is even involved in their church growing up. But, as he says, what do I still lack? This person still lacks. They have it all, but still lack. This person knows something in missing, is missing. In love and hoping to bring this young man to an awareness of what he is truly lacking and missing out on, Jesus presses further. He moves from the academic and general commandments to personal and specific. In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, though, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." 
this young man started off looking for eternal life. It's used a number of synonyms of, are, of eternal life are used in this passage. Eternal life, life, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, saved, all these synonyms. This man is pursuing and desiring to be made right with God and find eternal life and joy, but he is lacking. In this search, this man encountered the right per- person, Jesus. He looked for the right things, eternal life. He asked the right questions, but when he heard Jesus' requirements to enter into, ter- enter into eternal life, he left sorrowful. He left sorrowful when he was encountered by Jesus' message. (coughs) The difference between you and this man likely is not so great. The difference between you and this man in this story is likely not so great. In fact, I would go so far as to say that for many of you, the biggest difference between you and this man is he lived in an age where he couldn't distract himself from the big questions of life with social media and Netflix. And when he sat with himself and he thought about the meaning of life and if he was right with God, he realized he lacked. I think that many of us and many of you sitting in this room probably have the same lack and probably have the same nagging question, but may have been able to distract yourself from it by busyness, from advancement, with money, maybe with social media and with Netflix and with all the other things that distract us today. You and this young man may not be much more different uh, than you think. Do you ever experience lacking? Are you ever sorrowful over the big questions of the meaning of life? Do you ever come to church, encounter Jesus, and leave sorrowful rather than filled with the joy that everyone around you seems to be talking about? If yes, if yes, the realities that we are going to see in this passage are for you. This man encountered Jesus and he walked away with sorrow rather than joy. And we are going to learn some warnings from him about how we might not walk away after encounter with Jesus with sorrow. As is usual, after this encounter with the young man, Jesus turns to his disciples and explains to them what is going on. They're confused. They're amazed by what happened. And Jesus says to his disciples this, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. Jesus, who in the world then can be saved? If a rich person is like a camel going through the eye of a needle, what's a poor person? Like a mouse going through the eye of a needle? It's the the same impossibility. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The disciples react with astonishment with amazement, who can be saved? They show how surprising and incredible that this impressive young man that would seem like a great candidate from Jesus' team is turned away in sorrow rather than accepted with a position of status and leadership in Jesus' movement. Again, we like to think that everyone who encounters Jesus is going to be blessed, but throughout the Gospels, throughout the Scripture, we see many people encounter the message of God and leave sorrowful, and that should be a warning for us today. In this passage, we're going to see three reasons that the rich young man left Jesus' presence full of sorrow rather than full of joy. We're going to see three reasons. These are very important because we want to know how we can have joy in encountering Jesus rather than sorrow, right? We want to find life, not be turned away with sorrow. We want to be like Zacchaeus from last week, who although he was a sinner, found joy in relationship with Jesus and not like the rich young man who encountered Jesus and was turned away. What is going on? Why does this seemingly great guy miss out on Jesus? Well, the first reason that we will jump into is that the rich young man left Jesus full of sorrow because he was deceived by the false comfort from religion. 
All right, he was deceived by the false comfort that comes from religion. How was religion comforting to this rich young man? We see right off the back in his, intera- in his interaction with Jesus that he asked the question, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? After asking what good deed he must do, he continues on this path. All these good deeds I have kept. All these commandments I have done. This man was convinced that he was impressive enough to do something to earn God's approval and acceptance. But this is a false comfort. This is a false belief, and it deceived him. Religion, you see, is a strategy in which we do good to get on God's good side. All right? Religion is a strategy in which you do good to try to get on God's good side. Religion in this way is deceitfully comforting to some. And I say it's only deceitfully comforting to some because it is only comforting if you relatively and subjectively do well at it, right? If you are doing better than those around you, relatively, or if you feel like you are doing a good job, subjectively, then religion is going to be comforting. But there's another side to that same coin. If you feel like you are not living up to everyone's expectations or falling short of how other people are living, relatively, or if you feel like you are constantly letting God down subjectively, then religion is not going to manifest itself as pride and self-righteousness and arrogance. That pride in religion is going to manifest itself as despair, right? Religion is deceitfully comforting to some, and because this rich young man was so much better than everybody else around him, he was a leader among his people, he was comforted by it. He felt like he was doing good enough. If anyone was going to be accepted by God, it was going to be him. And this is how the people in Jesus' day thought about the law. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reinterpreted the law to show them that all they were doing was humanizing and relativizing the commands of God, making it attainable to people in a way that it was never meant to be. Right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that anger is actually judged as murder. Right? Anger is actually judged as murder. So if we take the law and we say don't murder, we relativize it, we humanize it, we can say, I haven't murdered, I'm good, and I'm acceptable to God. Right? But Jesus says that it's not murder that you're going to be tried for, it's actually the anger in your heart that you have towards your brother. He did the same thing with lust and adultery. Jesus said that it's not just adultery that you will be condemned and fall short of God for, but it's actually lust in your heart. He says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery in your heart. Right, when we relativize and humanize God's law, we may think that we can live up to it and then in that case find some kind of false comfort, deceitful comfort from religion. But when we understand God's law and what it actually is, we realize we have no chance of living up to it at all. When we relativize and humanize God's law, the most impressive of us may receive some kind of deceitful uh, rest and joy and satisfaction from religion, thinking if God's going to accept anyone, it's going to be me. But when we understand God's law for what it truly is, how deep it goes, and what it actually calls us to, we'll be pierced to the heart, realizing that we don't live up to it, not even close. Not for a second, not for a moment, on our own. The only way that you can think that you are impressive to God is by having a massive misunderstanding of who God is and who you are. It's the only way that you can think you'll be impressive to God on your own is a massive misunderstanding of who God is and his character and who you are and his character. God is utterly holy, righteous, good, perfect, unapproachable, full of light and no darkness, no wickedness or deceit in him. We, you, 
are utterly sinful and corrupt to your very core. This is what the Bible teaches about who God is and who we are. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Even our most righteous deeds, this verse says, in light of God's holiness, are but polluted garments, tainted by selfishness and other sinful motivations and goals that are coming up out of the corruptedness of our heart. Religion is a strategy in which we do good to try to get on God's good side. And it is a false comfort because objectively, we can never reach the goal that we are trying to accomplish through religion. We can't get on God's good side. Jesus loved this man, and he did not allow the rich young man to continue living according to this false belief. He showed him the increasing intensity of these commandments. Right at first, he says, keep the commandments. Rich young man doesn't even address it. He's, he got that, so Jesus intensifies. Keep these six commandments. The rich young man, he says, I've kept these. What do I still lack? And then Jesus intensifies again, sell everything and give it to the poor. And here the rich young man taps out. He couldn't live up to what Christ expected of him. He was trusting in this false comfort that was given to him by religion, but he realized when he encountered Jesus that he could not do enough good to get on, good side, on God's good side. He realized at some point he had to tap out and he couldn't keep up any longer and he was not going to be able to impress God by his works. So he left full of sorrow, not with joy, but full of sorrow because he realized he wasn't good enough. Have you been, have you been deceived by the false comfort from religion? Have you been deceived by this false comfort from religion? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you think of yourself as a pretty good person, but I would just ask you to be honest with yourself. You are only good to the extent that it benefits you in some way. The way that it makes you feel good about yourself the way that it makes you look good in the eyes of others, the way that it is going to benefit you if you meet some deity, deity uh, beyond the grave, you are good out of inherently selfish motivations. The Bible is clear as could be on this. There is only one who is good, and that is God himself. Maybe you're a Christian, and you know that you are not good, but we can fall into operating with God based on this idea of religion, trying to get on his good side. Maybe you feel you have a good week and you feel close to God. Come here and worship with your hands up and clap and then have a bad week. You kind of cower and slink in and try to get out without anybody asking any tough accountability questions or something, right? Up and down, up and down, although you know that you've been saved by God's grace. Like a car out of alignment, you may swerve unknowingly to interact with God based on religion and doing good to get on his good side rather than resting in the gospel of grace that he provides for us through Jesus. And here is a test for you from this passage. Religion has a cap on obedience to Jesus. If your obedience to Jesus in any area, especially finances as we see from this passage, has a cap, that means you may be operating out of religion. Right, religion and doing good to get on God's good side only has so much power to lead you to obedience to Jesus. But when you understand the explosive gospel of grace that Jesus gave himself for you when there was nothing that you could do to earn it, that uncaps your obedience to Jesus. You say, Jesus, you gave everything for me. Look at all that you did for me. Now what can I do for you? Would you even let me keep anything for myself, Jesus? It's all yours. It uncaps our obedience. If you can genuinely say that you will do anything Jesus calls you to do, that you trust him, 
That is only possible by the Holy Spirit awakening your heart to trust and to love Jesus. This is the first reason that the rich young man encountered Jesus and left full of sorrow. He was deceived by the false comfort from religion, and Jesus tore it down. He showed him he couldn't do it, and neither can you. The next reason we see is that this young man fell into the cunning danger of money. He fell into the cunning danger of money. Jesus here refused to stay academic and general, like I mentioned before, but he pressed this man into the specific and the personal. Right, Jesus went right to the idol of this man's heart, which he knew was money. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You're not going to find this command in the Old Testament. Right? Jesus noted a couple others that he had mentioned to the man from the Old Testament. He says, follow these. What Jesus did here was personalize the general command that he found in the Old Testament to this man's heart. The general and academic became personal and specific for this man. Just a quick aside, do you relate to Jesus in the academic and general? Or has Jesus encountered you at times in your life in the personal and specific if Jesus hasn't encountered you in the personal and specific and pointed out sins in your life that hurt because they're right at you, you might not have encountered him. Jesus moves from the academic in general to the personal and specific here, going after his heart for money. Jesus is loving his man by doing this, loving this man by doing this, because this man has a huge problem that goes so f- much further beyond anything that he would have known. He's looking for one more thing that he can do to impress God. But Jesus says, actually what's happening is that this man treasures something in his heart more than this man treasures Jesus. This man is worshiping an idol. This man has given himself to the cunning danger of money and it has become an idol for him. This is what an idol is. An idol is anything in your life anything in your life that you treasure more than God. John Piper says it like this, what is an idol? It is the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend, good grades, approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you are following or a sport or your immaculate yard. We are called to love God first and foremost and there ought to be no challenger. Right? An idol is anything that we treasure more than God in our hearts. That is why God could say to Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac on the altar. You need to be willing to part with anything in this world for me. That is why God gives the command, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. That is why he could say to this rich young man without being evil or vindictive or anything. This is why Jesus could give the command saying, sell everything, give it to the poor and follow me. Because if there's any challenger in our hearts, that is an idol and it is bad for us, it is terrible for us that that is there. When we see Jesus clearly, as the hymn says, the things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We have idols on our hearts when we are looking and seeing them greater than us, but when we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, they, the things of the world grow strangely dim. This man loved his money more than God. Jesus knew it, and he called this man to give it up. Money is a particularly dangerous idol, although it can be any, a bunch of different things can be idols, and we see it all over this story. 
right? This man was sorrowful and couldn't follow Jesus because he had many possessions. Jesus tells the disciples that a rich man only goes to heaven with great difficulty. Uh, and that the Bible talks all over the place about money. In uh, 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is writing to his protege and says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I mean, that is just a past. There's so many hard and challenging and nasty words talking about the danger of the love of money. This is a strong warning that money is incredibly dangerous. Through love for money, many people have wandered from the faith, it says. It was happening then, and it still happens now. John Piper, again, he points this out. Money exerts a certain control over us because it seems to hold out so much false promise of happiness. It it whispers with great force, think and act so as to get into a position to enjoy my benefits. This may include stealing, borrowing, or working. Money promises happiness, and we serve it by believing the promise and walking by that faith and chasing money with everything that we have. For the rich young man, the cunning and dangerous love of money, the idolatry of money, the service of money had overtaken his heart. Jesus called him out on it because he loved him wanted to separate him from it. The young man needed to be aware of this and to repent. Jesus did not remain academic and general, but he made it personal and specific in love for him. What about for you? When we move this conversation about money from general and academic to the specifics of money, how do you feel? This call that Jesus gave to this man to sell everything and follow him How does that make you feel? Or how about I weaken it a little bit for you and say something like this. uh, Just sell anything unnecessary to survive. Maybe operate with one car instead of two, downsize the house, give away half the 401k, and give it to the poor. Right? I'm not even asking anything like what Jesus asked of this man, but how does that make you feel? This story does not teach that Christians everywhere should sell everything and give it to the poor. But if that is comforting to you, you likely are the very one who needs to hear that command. This story, Jesus is not teaching that every Christian everywhere needs to have no possessions and give it to the poor. We see throughout the Bible, Christians have personal property and are not selling every possession and giving it to the poor. But if that is comforting to you, you are probably the one who needs to hear this command from Jesus because you need to love God more than you love money. This passage does teach that if we worship anything other than God, we are not truly his. And it also teaches that money is a uniquely dangerous and cunning idol. It's like a monster in our hearts, killing us by numbing our affections for God. It's dangerous. It keeps us from loving God first. We can't have two primary loves. It just does not work that way. This monster takes our joy, keeping us from God. Jesus, in love for this man, tries to help him separate from this monster, tries to help him kill the monster by cutting it off, selling his possessions. But the man is already given over to this monster who has taken a hold of his heart, and he can't. He leaves Jesus sorrowful because he has fell, fallen into the cunning danger of money. Does the monster have its hold on you? Does the cunning danger of money have its hold on you? I'm not Jesus. I can't see into your heart, and I can't demand that you obey this command. But Jesus knows. 
and you know, Jesus isn't going to be fooled. Do you love God and do you trust him? Do you look to him for joy and pleasure and satisfaction? Or do you trust money? Do you love money? And you turn to the things that money can get for joy and pleasure and satisfaction or for security. What do you love, Jesus or money? You cannot love both. You can't have two masters. You can't serve two masters. Love or money. Money is a dangerous, dangerous idol. This man had fallen for the cunning danger of money. He loved money, and when God asked him to give it up, he could not do it. He sold his soul for a buck and a momentary feeling of security. This is the cunning danger of money. The second reason that the rich young man encountered Jesus and left full of sorrow. The final reason is that he experienced the impossibility of salvation. All right, the final reason is that this man experienced the impossibility of salvation. Jesus called this man to do something that he could not do. In this story, Jesus calls this man to do something that this man could not do. Jesus said to him, again, if you would be perfect, go and sell everything. And when, when the man heard this, he couldn't. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus explains this to his disciples, right? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were astonished. astonished. And Jesus looked at them and said, said this, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The disciples get what is happening here. This is an impressive young man. He has wealth, he has success, he has moral excellence, people look up to him. He could have great impact on the kingdom of God, just giving away half his possessions. But Jesus asked for all of it and he couldn't do it. And the disciples get it, they understand, they are blown away. If this man can't be saved, Jesus, who then can be saved? He's got it all. If this man can't be, who can be? They get it, they understand. With man, this is impossible and they are astonished. They are confused and they don't know what's going on. This man left Jesus full of sorrow because he came face to face with the impossibility of salvation. Face to face with the impossibility of salvation. What do I mean when I say that salvation is impossible? According to any human power or effort, salvation is impossible. Right? According to any any at all, human power or effort, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is the one who saves. First John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, as if our love for him saved us, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us. Our only hope of salvation was God acting to send his son to die for us on the cross, providing a way for salvation for us. And not only that, but we also need God to apply that salvation to our hearts by waking us up to our need for salvation and leading us to cling to Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to come to us. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and saved us. And the Bible is clear on this throughout. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes the spiritual state of every man, every woman, ever born. Dead in sin, uninterested in pleasing God, given over to following the passions of the flesh. This tells us we were not treading water in need for Jesus to come along and toss us a life raft to help us back into the boat. 
This passage teaches us that we were dead on the bottom of the pool for days and days, and Jesus had to come and breathe life into us and resurrect us. It is impossible for us to do anything for our spiritual state. We're dead. 2 Corinthians 4, you are blind to the gospel. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 teaches the same idea, but in another way. We're blind. We can't see our way, find our way, feel our way towards God. We're not just a heart of eyesight needing a little bit of aid and some glasses. We're blind from birth, and we need to be given sight in a miracle. It is impossible for us to find our way to God. We are blind. For salvation, you do not need to work harder. All right, hear this. For salvation, you do not need to work harder. You need a miracle on par with stuffing a camel through an eye of a needle. Salvation, we become Christians, not by working hard to achieve, but by, beg, by desperately begging to receive. We become Christians. Salvation is not something we work hard to achieve, but it is something that we come on our knees begging desperately to receive from Jesus. There is nothing that we can do to accomplish this but come to Jesus and cry out to him. What this man had to do to be saved and inherit eternal life was something that he could not do. He had to love God more than his money, and he could not change the things that he loves. This is one of my favorite illustrations. We cannot change the things that, he, that we love. I love steak. Zach, in fact, cooked up a great steak for me Friday night, and it was amazing. Some asparagus and potatoes, and it was delicious, and I just had the time of my life eating that thing. And it it was a great time. But at the same time, uh, lima beans are something that I just absolutely despise. They have no flavor. They are mushy in a really uncomfortable way. And I don't hate all vegetables. I'm not one of those people. Just lima beans are just one of those things that that I just can't stand. Now, if you want to come and tell me to love lima beans when I love steak and to actually love lima beans instead of steak, that is not something that I can do. Right? By religion and pretending or by working, I might, if you stick a gun to my head, pretend that I like lima beans and could maybe convince someone that I liked lima beans more because they don't, I mean, they're not just going to make me puke or something. I could pretend that I like them. Um, but you have to force me. And as soon as you go away, I'm not going to love them anymore. I cannot change the things that I love. If I were to start loving lima beans, what I need is just new spiritual taste buds. I need this tongue removed, and I need a new one put in that enjoys the sliminess and softness of lima beans. It's not going to happen. The same thing is true of salvation. The same thing is true for this man. He cannot change what he loves. He loves money. He hates God. This is true for you. You cannot change what you love. You need God to come in and give you new spiritual taste buds. And the way that he does that is through the preaching of the gospel. Even though this is impossible to us, it is possible to God. The new birth, moving from death to life, as we hear the message of the gospel, and we have new affections created in us, as we see the glory of God in the gospel, as we see how good Jesus is to us, new affections, new desire, new loves are given to us, and we become a new creation. And God, in love for us, in sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins, because he first loved us, He gives us new spiritual taste buds as we see the incredible glory of God in the gospel and the transforming work of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. 
This transformation of loves is not something that we can produce, but it's something that happens to us by God. And that is why we praise God and we give him glory for our salvation because he has done everything necessary for us when we were broken and wicked sinners. Ephesians 2, God makes us alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, God shines the light of the gospel into our hearts as a gracious act by proving to us that he loved us. What amazing grace that God would save us when we weren't looking for it. He changes our hearts. Have you experienced this? Have you come face to face with the impossibility of salvation and the impossibility of loving God? And have you seen the good news of the gospel in light of that and been transformed to love and to treasure Jesus? When was the first time in your life when the gospel exploded and you first loved God with all your heart? When we sing songs of worship, these beautiful truths, when was the first time that your eyes started welling up with tears as you just thought about how incredible the good news was that God would save you, a sinner? When did reading your Bible become a joy rather than a drudgery? Or have you not seen Jesus' beauty yet? One way, as we see in this story, that you can tell that maybe you haven't is by looking at your relationship with money. Do you relate more to money like Zacchaeus, giving it away in joy, or more like the rich young man, stiff-arming Jesus to keep your possessions? If you haven't, if you're concerned, we'd love to talk with you and pray for you and beg that God would open your eyes to the glory of the gospel. If you haven't, don't work to achieve. Don't try to act like a Christian. We don't love God. You'll always fall short. Don't try to work and impress God, but beg him to open your eyes. Don't work to achieve, but beg God to receive that new heart of, the gospel, of loving the gospel. This man left because he uh, was under the false comfort of religion. He was sorrowful. He fell into the cunning danger of money, and he understood the impossibility of religion. So, what does this mean for the big question that we have been asking all throughout uh, this sermon series, Three Rich Guys in the Bible. How does a relationship with Jesus impact your relationship with money? How does a relationship with Jesus impact your relationship with money? You should be afraid of your money. I think that's what we get from this story. You should be afraid of your money. The love of money may very well be the biggest obstacle between you and an eternity with Jesus. You should be afraid of your money. I'm not saying that. You don't need to be upset with me. This is what Jesus says right here, right? He left sorrowful for he had great possessions. If you have a lot of money, which I think we would agree as Americans, most of us in here, even college students, it's, you know, in a, maybe it's a future money, um, but the degree is at least worth something we can pretend about. You should only expect to go to heaven with great difficulty, right? Jesus says a rich man only goes to heaven with great difficulty. And it's a miracle, a massive miracle. You should be afraid of your money. In fear, you should give your money away. Give it away. Get it away from you because it ties you to this world, ties your heart to this world in dangerous ways that you may turn and stiff arm Jesus. J.C. Ryle, a Puritan pastor, writer, says this, Nothing, I am sure has such a tendency to quench the fire of religion as the possession of money. And John Wesley, a preacher and evangelist, says, Money never stays with me. If it, would burn, it would burn me if it did. I'd throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find a way into my heart. 
Money is dangerous. Be afraid of it. Give it away. Don't store it up and trust it more and more. The Bible says that where you put your treasure, your heart will follow. Another teaching that Jesus gave in the Gospels. In a funny way, that teaching shows us that money is both a lead and a lag measure. You are going to put your money where your heart is, but where you put your, your money, your heart will also go. Look at where you put your money, and it's going to tell you something, both of where your heart currently is and where it is going. Fear your money, give it away, and use it to help guide your heart towards heaven. Fear your money. This man was kept from heaven because of his money. Be afraid of it and use it to your advantage by giving it away. In fear, live well below your means. Living well below your means advances uh, and, and advance God's kingdom. If you make a salary of $250,000 and God has blessed you with that, think of the incredible good you can do to advance the kingdom by in fear giving it away and advancing God's kingdom by giving to gospel God-glorifying causes. How incredible is it that you might be able to use some of your dollars to advance the kingdom of heaven, to change eternities of souls, and to help lead your own heart towards heaven in fear. Give it away. Live well below your means. And that leads us to uh, closing out. Do you treasure Jesus or money? That's the question. Do you treasure Jesus or do you treasure money? There's one little phrase that I didn't really touch as I walked through the rest of the text. Jesus says that if this man, when this man sells all his possessions and gives it to the poor, he says, then he will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus shows this man his choice. Keep your treasures or have Jesus. Does this man treasure Jesus or money? He must make a choice. You also must make a choice. You can't have Jesus and money. You can't have Jesus if you love money. You must treasure Jesus and reject money. Jesus is clear on this throughout the scriptures. Adrian Rogers, a great preacher from the previous generation here, says you can sing all you want about how you love Jesus. You can have crocodile tears in your eyes, but the consecration that doesn't reach your purse has not reached your heart. You can't love God and money. You can't worship them both. You have to accept one and reject the other. Do you see Jesus as a treasure worth giving everything for? And is that shown in how you relate to money? Do you see him, Jesus, the one holding everything together by the word of his power, the one who was there at the foundation of the world? Do you see him being born in a lowly manger, fleeing with his family to Egypt as refugees for his life? Do you see him taking on the suffering of flesh for you, even though he had the treasures of heaven to enjoy for all eternity? Do you see him remaining quiet when falsely accused? Do you see him hanging on the cross with the nails driven through his hands and his feet when he holds everything together by that word of his power and could call down legions of armies to punish every evildoer who put them there? He stayed for you. Do you see him there? Do you see him, the one who sold his treasures in heaven, becoming poor so that you could become rich? Do you see the incredible gift of grace, the treasure that Jesus is? Once you see it, 
you won't be able to respond like this rich young man. Once you see Jesus and his glory and his grace, you won't be able to hold on to your possessions for yourself. You have to give them away because Jesus is so much more precious and loving others is what we are called to do in light of that. The only thing that makes sense of the way Zacchaeus last week used money is the explosive power of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you treasure Jesus more than money? I hope you do because Jesus is more precious than money. I hope that you treasure Jesus more than money because Jesus is more precious than money. Do you trust him? If so, that will impact your bank account in a radical way. If you don't see Jesus as a treasure, beg God to open your eyes to see the beauty and the worth of Jesus. Look at Jesus lifted up on the cross for you and find life. Don't be fooled by the false comfort from religion. Don't fall into the cunning danger of money. Don't be devastated by the impossibility of salvation, but look to Christ, the one who gave himself for you in faith, and there find life. Surrender to him. Learn from the rich young man. Don't buy into the lies that money offered, that money offers, and walk into sorrow and death. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus and find life. Let's pray. Father, you could not be more clear in your word that you warn us about the danger of idolatry and specifically the danger of the idol of money. I pray that we would see Jesus for who he is. Open the eyes of our hearts. Those of us who believe, open it more and open our eyes more and more. And those of us who don't believe, whether we are deceived into thinking we believe right now or we know we don't believe, God, open the eyes of our heart to truly know you to see the beauty of Jesus, his worth, the treasure, and give us grace that we might see that. We would respond in faith, cling to him and trust him and reject holding on to any idol or possession. Father, fill us with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.